You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another Western Rookie Podcast episode. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and today I have Rusty Smith on the call. Rusty, you just got back from a Canadian whitetail hunt. Maybe we should, maybe, I said we should start with caribou, but maybe we should start with Canadian whitetail, because I don't think we've ever had that topic on the podcast. Oh, right on. So, yeah, fun. I've done it twice, uh, last year and this year, and I don't know if you know anything about Canadian whitetails, those suckers are huge, and I, I don't just mean antlers, I mean body size and and everything. They, they grow some big, big animals up there. Yeah, so, you know, we're in northern Minnesota, well, not northern Minnesota, we're in the northern United States, but in Minnesota, and we have, like, full-body whitetails. I just call them full-body whitetails. They're not small, they're not Texas, Alabama whitetails, you know, but I think the biggest I've personally seen was 227 field-dressed, which is a big, it's a big animal. Yeah, but I've heard like rumors of like giant old bucks in Canada just blow that out of the water. Yeah, the the area I was hunting is pretty far north in Alberta, and uh, it's not unusual for them to kill three hundred and fifty pound bucks. Still not not dressed. Yeah, but three hundred and fifty, and a few years ago they killed one that went four hundred. Oh my gosh! Are you like way up by the northern territories? Uh, we're not quite that far north. When you go into Alberta, you got a lot of your uh, rolling farmland. Looks more like Nebraska, Kansas type stuff down low. And then when you get up, oh, several hours north of like Edmonton, you start to hit pine forests. Mm. And those pines, especially like if you look on a map, you'll just see it go green all of a sudden. 
and it goes green all the way up to the Northwest Territories and beyond. And I go up and hunt right on that edge, right where your yeah. farmland and everything meets the pines. Where there's food and cover. Yep. Exactly. So you're a, obviously, we talked about it before we started, you're an Idaho resident, American. Yeah. So you're, do you either, do you know people in Canada or are you just going with an outfitter? Because Canada's got like similar to Alaska rules. I think they're probably even more strict than Alaska where it's like big game is a no-go unless you know someone or you are guided. Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, Canada, I, I go up with an outfitter who is a friend. Okay. Um, I consider him a really, really good friend. And uh, because you're correct, if you're going to Canada from the States, you have to have an outfitter or they can do like what's called a hosted hunt. Yeah. Um, where you've got to have a buddy or family member there that's, hey, you're coming with me. You're with me the whole time you're right. uh, type scenario. So uh, outside of that, you you got to go with some sort of a, an outfitter. It's not Alberta Darkhorn, is it? No, but I know those guys. Okay. Because yeah. you said Alberta Monster mm-hmm. Bucks and I was like, well. They have monster bucks and they're in Alberta and I've, I haven't, I haven't had them on the podcast or anything. I've just found them on Instagram and, you know, every now and then when I need some inspiration to not shoot a little buck and call my, yeah, season (laughs) over, I go to their page. So they're, they're up in that same world. They're, they're in the same general world where the plains meet the, the pines is where I go. Like they, they hunt really close to where I'm at. Yeah, my father-in-law does a Manitoba deer hunt every now and then with his buddies, and it sounds similar. He, um, I mean, he's a pretty avid deer hunter, and when yeah. he goes up there, he's like, it is insane. Like, it's cold, you sit all day, I mean, it's hard hunting, but the number of deer you see and, like, the number of good bucks you see is unlike anything he's ever experienced in Minnesota. He said it just... It is. You'll see dozens it's, and dozens of deer. Maybe some nights he said we've seen like a dozen bucks. Like a dozen bucks, you have to like check every one of them with the glass to see if it's a shooter because they're all yeah, good. It's a crazy world. My my buddy, um, he's really well known in the whitetail world, uh, Clay Charlton, um, Take em Outfitters is who he is. If you look him up, you'll, you'll have the same kind of inspiration you were seeing on the, yeah. the Dark Horn page. But uh it is interesting. If you're out in kind of that farmland that meets the timber area, you see a ton of deer, but then you can get farther up into that bush where you don't see as many, but it's so thick. I mean, you're taking shots that aren't farther than 70 yards and some of them less, but there's deer up in that, that bush that have like never seen people. That's crazy. Um, and Alberta doesn't have baiting. Saskatchewan, they can bait. Alberta doesn't, so they get way more bucks to maturity out in that bush, and they are literally world-class sized animals up there. They're not easy to hunt. No, I bet um, not. Especially if you get out in that bush, but man, you, you know you're on some monsters. How did you meet your buddy? Did you just find the place and went, and then you just, you know met him through going to his outfitter now you're friends or did you were you friends with him first and then he said you know you need you got you got to come up here man you die hard hunter come up yeah great question so interesting world it started with um i'll back up even a little farther i never hunted a whitetail in my life until 2015 so in southeast idaho where i live we don't we don't have whitetails if i want to hunt whitetail in idaho i got to go to northern idaho there's a few little pockets yeah in central idaho that have them but you know, you got to go up towards the Panhandle, Coeur d'Alene, et cetera. And uh, so I grew up hunting deer, elk. I grew up in a houndsman family. We ran cats and 
never saw him. And so it wasn't until 2015 I shot my first whitetail. I think I've killed like eight or nine since going to different states um, in the Midwest, in Idaho. And I just started getting a hankering for these big Canadian bucks, just like you saw on that Instagram page. Yeah. I'm drooling over these dark antlered. Instead, you know, I'm in the Midwest hunting these things that are just these bright white antlers. It's easier to see the bucks than the does because they stand out. And uh, I got a hankering for these big Canadian bucks. So I started searching. I was looking on the internet. I was looking on Instagram. Um, looked at the Alberta Dark Horse guys page the same. And I found Clay's Take Him Outfitters. And I started looking at some of the stuff this guy was taking. And I got looking into him. And Clay's a world-class hunter. I mean, elk, deer, moose, he's done it. He runs trap lines. He does giant waterfowl hunts. Uh, you, you name it, he is like the classic Northern Canadian outdoorsman. Um, and I reached out to him. So I, my, I just reached out to him and started talking to him about his hunts and what was his options, what was available, blah, blah, blah. And it started out as that, a relationship from us just talking on social media of okay. all things. Um, went up and hunted with him. Uh, and I'm not a, I'm not an outfitter guy. I, I'm a DIY guy. It's, it's the first hunt I've ever done that I've like paid to go with an outfitter. Right. Um, this guy is awesome. They treat you like, I literally feel like I'm family at their place. Um, super good people. And this guy is a white tail whisperer. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I thought I've started to learn a lot about white tails over the last, you know, eight years or so. And, and, this guy's taught me so much more in just a couple of times I've gone up with him. We've become good friends. We, we get on phone calls. We share text messages of our different hunts throughout the year, all kinds of stuff. Um, and, you know, so if I got to go to Canada and I got to have an outfitter because the way the rules are set up, I'm going with my buddy Clay. Yeah. So now is it to the point where you would like to do that every year? Is like as long as the calendar works out, I'm going to Canada and shooting a whitetail with my buddy. Yeah, because it's it's tricky. I've often wanted to go to, I mean, I've often hunted Colorado third season, which is November, right? Yeah. Um, and so you could have some conflicts, but like last year, I I had a third season Colorado tag, and I ended up booking this Canada hunt, and it literally turned out I was going to have two days to hunt Colorado third season, and then I needed to be driving to Canada. Um so I did. I, I went down early to Colorado. I actually ended up shooting a mule deer with my bow during the rifle season um, and then busted to Canada. And after doing that, it's like I would totally give up my Colorado mule deer hunting to go up and hunt those Canadian whitetails every year if I can make it happen. Yeah, I'm a DIY guy as well. Um, I've never been on a big game outfitted hunt. I've never been on any outfitted hunt. I've had the closest thing I've had to outfitters are buddies that are so good and have such good gear they should yeah. be charging their buddies to come with them. I mean, I've had some waterfall hunts where guys have had 100 dozen flocked head snow, 750 conkers, 10 layout blinds, three, I mean, just everything. He had yeah. three hedge trimmers in his trailer, and he'd be like, uh, you three uh, go out and trim hide. Like, go find weeds and trim them with these, ha like, steel hedge trimmers. You're not pulling stuff out of the ground with your hands. You three go brush in the, you know, you three put out all the decoy. Like, he's, like, running a production line out here. And so that's the closest thing. I mean, it's basically outfitted at that point. Sure. I brought the snacks and the comic relief and <laughs> and, um, and, I, and a lot of shells because I'm not a very good shot at waterfall. It's 
But I have to imagine, and I'm really curious to hear your perspective on this, because as a DIY guy, I've done DIY elk. We've packed them out the whole nine yards. I think I've done every animal in the West other than like the King's game, right? Like yeah. anything that takes you a lifetime to draw. Haven't sure. done, haven't done sheep, goats, you know, moose, the big, the big three, um, but the rest of it we've done, and we've always done as a family DIY. My brother's done a couple early D or outfitted hunts back in his elk hunting career, but now it's all DIY. Sure. Is it nice after a season of grinding to just show up to a place and things just work? Yeah. Um, I, I don't have a lot to refer to other than going up with my buddy Clay. But, yeah, I for example, this year I grinded – all fall. I had a caribou hunt in August. I had a uh, archery antelope hunt in August. Um, I killed two bull elk with my bow this fall in September. Um, just grinding away. And Clay's up there doing the real work. Like he's scouting for these bucks. He's finding scrape lines and, you know, putting out some trail cameras and finding where these guys live, where their bedrooms are and doing all that work, putting stands out, etc. And it is nice. I show up and and uh, Clay, what are you seeing? Oh, can't believe what I'm seeing, you know, and, and showing me what he's finding. And I'm using his expertise. I mean, he's he's the one that's the real hunter in this hunt. And then he's putting his faith in me that he can put me in a stand and I can take care of one of those big bucks for him, you know. Right. Um, it is it is nice. Uh, I love the grind. I love the personal satisfaction that comes from the grind. But uh it is nice to show up and they're feeding me every night. <laughs> that's, that's some of what, what I mean too, because, you know, you know, I do shed hunting. I'll sleep in the back of my, I sleep in the bed of my pickup yeah. at 15 below for like these early shed hunts in, in North Dakota yeah. where it's cold and it's like, it's so cold. You don't even want to cook food because you don't want to go outside. You're like, what kind yeah. of snacks do I have in here? And, um, you know, elk hunting, setting up tents early mornings in just chores. Like, you always got to do your own chores and get ready to hunt. And all, like, I got to imagine it's nice when you just put your bag and your gun or bow in the truck and you show up and, you know, you're sleeping in a warm bed each night and you're taking, like, good meals. And everyone likes to, you know, take the, like, I feel like it's, like, no longer cool if it's not incredibly hard. Right. You know, like it's not cool unless it's a grind and it's like uncomfortable and miserable and just like you're a hardened person for doing it. And I'm like, I don't know. I would love to just go out and be like, dude, you need to sit in this stand. And I sit in this stand and I see 200 deer. I'd be like, I'd love that. I'm not going to skip the other stuff, but by the end of sure. November, I'm ready to sit in a blind with a heater. A hundred percent. And I, I get plenty of grinding with all the hunts I do during the year. I get plenty of grinding in and, um, it is nice to have this one hunt, you know, for a week or so that I go up, I'm still sitting in a stand for 10 hours a day, right? uh, you know, freezing cold. Um, that hunt's not for everybody, right? Like it, it's, it's awful to some people, but I, I love it. He's done most of the grinding and yeah. he puts me in a good spot and I appreciate him for it. But to go do that, that once a year, I'm all for it. Yeah. I think we need to make it okay again to just hunt comfortable 
Yeah. Like if for so long it's not cool to be comfortable. It's like it's like if you're not sleeping on the ground, you're not tough enough. If you don't, if you have an air pad, you're too you're too soft. It's like I don't know. I want to be comfortable. Like yeah, I'm gonna do yeah. the hard work. I'm not gonna turn down shooting a bull in a in a hole and packing it out of there. But if sure. I can be comfortable, why not? Like it's just gonna help me kill. Yeah, I you know you have that grind like like elk hunting for example. I if you said rusty, you can only hunt one animal the rest of your life. This episode is brought to you by Steelhead Outdoors. What makes a Steelhead Outdoors gun safe stand out, aside from being the only American-made fire-insulated modular gun safe on the market, is the fact that you can customize your safe to be the perfect fit for you. Whether you pick one of the fan-favorite colors inspired by our national parks or one of the nearly 1,000 custom colors they offer, your safe is going to be perfect. You can even get a safe in a rust color where they actually make the metal rust to just the right level and then they seal it so you always have a perfectly rustic looking safe. And that's just on the outside. When it comes to the inside, you can configure it all kinds of different ways by adding panels to the door, using shelves on half to organize ammo, or even adding their motion activated light kit. I went with their brand new Recon 32 line in the awesome tactical looking black and white. And I currently have my safe set up with lawn guns on half and shelves on the other side so I can store all of my ammo and I love it. But the best part is it's completely modular. So as your firearm collection grows, you can configure your Steelhead Outdoor safe to match. Check out SteelheadOutdoors.com to build your custom safe and use the code Western Rookie, one word, Western Rookie, to save $150 on your Steelhead Outdoors safe. What is it? It's elk with a bow in the rut for me. That's that's my baby. And it is awfully rewarding, right? When you have grinded and grinded and grinded and you're getting your butt kicked, your teeth are kicked in, and it comes together and it works, it's phenomenal and awesome. Um, but I'm totally fine with going on <laughs> being comfortable at the same time. And, you know, heaven forbid, one of these years when I hopefully kill one of these monsters, a big monster clay puts me on, um, more power to clay. Like, yeah, I, part of me, I, I want to land one of those for him too, just as much as I, you know, we all want to kill big deer. I want to get it, but, um, you know, more power to clay for being the stud that found it in the first place and put me on it. And, I'm totally fine with teaming up with him. He needs a killer. He finds him and he needs a killer. I'll come do that once a year. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I mean, I I think that would be I love type 2 fun too. You know, like the elk hunting. Yeah. Like there's it's you know, you go up with clay and you shoot a big buck. You know, maybe if you've been going up for like 6 7 years and you and you finally got, you know, that big double drop. Sure. Yeah, you're going to get a huge serotonin hit. 100%. But it ain't going to be the same as you finding a public land bull in September seven miles back and pulling the trigger. And, and that feeling you get when your truck hits the last cattle gate on the way out of the mountain <laughs> and you look in the rear view and you can see those ivory tines sticking out of the box of your truck and you're oh, headed yeah. home like that. There is no replacing that. And I think that's yeah. okay, too. I think you mix it in. I think a great season is a little bit of those. Some of those type twos probably earlier in the season because you got the energy, you've been working out all summer. And by the time you get to November, like I'm all for a type one, just fun. It's not hard, camaraderie. We got a deer camp going on, a bunch of cool guys are in camp, or yep. you know, have it's getting dark early, so we're having bonfires. You know, you never, 
when we elk hunt, unless it's like the last day and we're just packing up tomorrow, we never stay up late and have a bonfire. And I know a lot of oh, people yeah. are going to say like, oh, that's part of elk camp for me. It's like, no, I'm there to kill. We get home, we make food, we go to bed. Like, it's 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock by the time we roll into clamp. We, a lot of times it's like, what's the easiest thing we can make for dinner? And sure. then we we all go to bed. And so I kind you kind of miss a little bit of that, too. It's fun to have a bonfire on the mountain and yeah. stay up way later mm-hmm. than you should. And that you, that's a great time to do it in those type 1 hunts. Like, I'm always thinking we should do, like, an antelope camp because everyone talks about deer camp. Everyone's got their elk camp. You try to go elk hunting with, like, if I went elk hunting with you, I'd be like, hey, Rusty, let's do an elk hunt. And you're like, well, okay, but, you know, I got this hunt in September in Idaho, and then I got this hunt already, and it's like, yeah, I got that week book too. And all of a sudden it's like, well, we already got our elk camp traditions, but no sure. one has an antelope camp. Yeah, yeah, they don't. And antelope's a good example. Like Type both, one. Both, yeah. both, types of, both types of fun are okay, and that's how I am. Every time I get an antelope tag, uh, it's like, man, this is a fun hunt. Like. Yeah, you know, like yeah, I get the I get the Mountain Dews and the the chips in the truck, and you're out glassing and looking for the one you want. It's a fun hunt to do with buddies, in my opinion. Buddies where, with great senses of humor, like yes, like can you imagine a truck full of four comedians hopped up <laughs> yes. on Mountain Dew and and Doritos yes. looking for? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it'd be great. My wife yes. wants to do yes. it because. Um, she just got done with residency and, and wow. now she's getting into hunting. She just bought a brand new Hoyt and then she smoked a buck at 12 yards on our new farm here. We just nice. moved in. So now she's kind of looking at me like, you know, Mr. Big Bow Hunter over there, you haven't ever shot a buck with your bow. Cause I've never <laughs> seen one that I wanted to shoot. Um, and she shot one on the first season with her brand new Hoyt. So she's, and I shoot a Matthew. So she's laughing at me for that. And, but now she wants to do the antelope hunt because she watched Randy Newberg. Uh-huh. And he gets up just normal, like a normal 6, 7 a.m., sun's peeking up. They go by the gas station, grab a box of donuts, and, and it's just a fun hunt. And they're laughing yeah. the whole time. And she's like, I want to do that. And I'm like, I do too. I really want to do that. Yeah, it is. It's fun. I, I consider, some guys might differ with me, but I consider spring spot and stock bear hunting very similar. It's like those bears aren't up at the crack of dawn. We, we sleep in on the spring bear hunt uh you know and get out and start heading in mid-morning to go hunt our bears uh when we do it so it's kind of like antelope to me i'm not in that uh, i'm gonna be hiking at 4 a.m and get yeah back in there yeah can you imagine somebody can you imagine if you went on an antelope hunt with a guy and he's like what time you want to wake up like 3 30 3 45 and you're like what <laughs> no i'm not yeah. waking up then yeah, yeah i like shed hunting for that reason it's just there's no pressure yeah go when you want to go and you're not, you Play never, back. you know what the thing, the nice thing about shed hunting is? You're never like, ah, I don't want to fill my tag on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. If you want, you can throw that antler into the bushes if you don't want to carry it home. Or see how far you can throw a caribou head. Uh, yeah, we've done that. We've done that <laughs> I watched that. You, I, I almost thought you lived in Canada from the number of caribou videos. And I'm usually, I mean, I'm doing this for a while, so I'm usually okay with picking out like, ah, this guy just w- took a lot of content on one hunt. Right. You know, but I'm like, oh, he's wearing this and this picture and that and that picture. And, you know, this, <laughs> you know, this was a, you know, sunny picture and the other one was cloudy. Like you can tell it's different, you know, snow on the ground, not snow on the ground. So you can, you must have done the caribou thing a few times. Two. Yeah. I've done it twice. Yeah. yeah. I've done it twice. But uh, don't get me wrong. I took a lot of footage and a lot of pictures on those hunts. Two, 
two very different hunts, even though they're in the same part of the world, but epic. One of, one of them I just did here in August with a good buddy, and it was pictures, video, and my stories will never be able to depict how epic that trip I did in August was. Like, my buddy and I all shoot a text to each other once in a while and recall, we're like, dude, that trip was so epic. That's like all we got to say. Yeah. Um, absolutely epic. But yeah, love. Even though I've only done it twice, absolutely love hunting caribou that's another hunt that i would have no problem as long as i could afford it to do it every single year i'd be happy are you able to do that one diy or are you in a unit where you needed a guide yeah we do a diy drop camp okay. so there's basically a transporter and a plane you can take your all your own gear they still fly you in or you can use their gear which is a nice way to go you don't got to do the logistics of getting you know traveling with fuel for a stove or stuff like that um, they provide the tent, the cots, the cooking stove, a pile of food. They dump you in the Arctic. Go, we'll see you in seven days. Yeah. Um, it's fun. You know what's crazy? I listened to a podcast with Randy Newberg and John Nosler, and both of them were in Alaska for 9-11 and got stranded because they shut down all flight, and the bush mm-hmm. pilots are like, you guys are going to kill people. Like, there's people out there that were expecting us to come get them 14 days ago. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we got stuck for 14 days. And then luckily we got back to Anchorage, and then we were stuck for, like, another 14 days because the bush pilots just came and picked us up. I don't know if they were supposed to or not, but then, like, the commercial flights were still down. Yeah. Yeah, it's – Alaska in general, like, that's terrible on 9-11 because there's no option, even if the weather's good. But yeah, the bad I've got weather. buddies – yeah, I've got buddies that have been stranded for 12 days straight because of weather. 12 days um, after they were supposed to get picked up? Um, not 12 days after, but like a five-day hunt, but they were there for 12 till a plane could finally come get them. What were they doing for food, just catching fish and shooting stuff? That's what's crazy. Like like the drop camp that we use, these guys provide you with a lot of food. Like we've, we've never been able to eat everything they send. Um, but in a perfect world, you hope you've killed a caribou. Yeah. Uh, and and now you got plenty of food that way. But yep, if you're on a river or a lake, you got fish opportunities and stuff as well. But it got a little sketchy for the How, days that were there for twelve. I I'm sure they got this figured out. But I assume you want to go with like a service when you fly in. And so like so I'm picturing like you're like looking for ways and you Google and stuff. You're like, Oh, I found this guy. His name's Richard. He's got a plane and he's going to fly <laughs> us in. And you know, he, yeah. he told us to meet here on the dock and we're here and he flies in. And then like Richard dies while you're there and no one knows you're in the back country. Like you want to go with the service where there's like a whiteboard and it says rusty Smith on this pass. We got to pick him up on the 12th. And if your pilot yes. gets sick, at least someone else will be like, Oh shit, we forgot about rusty. Let's go get him. <laughs> Absolutely. And so the, the place I use um, is through Outdoors International. So Outdoors International is a booking service, booking agency. Um, I actually do some hunt consulting for them and do some booking for them. And uh, they basically do booking for these different places. They, you know, they take care of the, the marketing for these places because they don't want to do it. They don't want to talk to a, the mar- you know, the outfits don't want to talk to 100 people and book two. So they have these guys do it for them. And uh, that's what we are. It's it's outlined. You got this many hunters. It is yeah. exactly what you said. It's a whiteboard, basically a map. This is where these guys are at, and it's all recorded. There's multiple people yeah. taking care of the logistics of it. Um, worst case scenario, you know, uh, search and rescue 
could come get you if it gets real ugly. But, yeah, uh, you're not going in there, I suppose, without an inreach. And so you're like, yeah. okay, we were supposed to get picked up 10 days ago. Like, we've been here for 17 <laughs> days. I'm going to hit the button. Or yeah, I'm going to yeah, start texting people like, hey, is someone coming to get us? Hey, you know, might have to have a couple of contacts back in Juneau or wherever Fairbanks is lined up. Yeah, because you're out there. We we go out of uh, Kotzebue, Alaska. So Kotzebue's, you know, western, northwestern Alaska. You're barely below the Arctic Circle line. And then you're hopping in, you know, a Cessna 180 or a Beaver plane or a Super Cub. And you're, we're flying 170 miles north into the Arctic. So you're in the Brooks Range. Yeah. 170 miles from the nearest native village. <laughs> it's, wow. it's pretty crazy. That is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, you got to yeah. have some trust in your plan at that point. You go with a friend that you trust, too. Like, I've, both times I've done it, there's been two of us. Guys will do groups of four or whatever. But uh, you you go with a person you trust. You got Arctic Grizzlies there. Um, yeah. I mean, there's there's crazy stuff. So you, you make sure you do it with a guy you trust, not just your neighbor from down the street that said, I want to go on a hunt. Well, that's a very, like big concern and I it I feel bad for folks because you know I have my own group and crew and, I, and I've done it enough that now I kind of understand how to pick a partner but you get so many requests of people a guy at your church or a guy at work or a guy in your neighborhood he's like oh man I'd love to do that and you know maybe if it's like a local thing it's like yeah we'll come on over on Saturday we'll go out or something that's one thing but on a big hunt usually you're like well I got my group group's kind of full and so you see people like, hey, I'm going with a guy from work. I'm going from a guy from church or whatever. I found a buddy. And I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I hope it works out for you, man. But, like, if you've never hunted with this person and you're not friends with this person, yeah. like, you're going to run into some issues. Like, we've had oh, yeah. stories of people where it's, like, four groups of four, and it's, like, these two guys want to go. There's an elk at a mile. There's an elk right there, a mile away, and they're like, "Let's go! We got four hours." And the other group's like, "Oh, I'm not walking over there. Are you nuts?" <laughs> yep. And you're like, "Well, now what do we do for nine days? Hope they're in camp." Yeah, you know that's I. If I go caribou hunting, I'm bear hunting. Uh, you know, we're chasing cats, whatever. I got that little group of people, family, and some close buddies. My my hunting circle's pretty small. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I get hit up constantly about especially mountain lions we get hit up so much for that a ton for elk etc but even my good buddies i hunt bears and all that stuff with i'm when it comes to elk i'm a solo elk hunter like somebody's like ah, i want to come with you i'm just like I, I don't want somebody to be there this is my sacred time and uh that's what the elk hunt is to me is this sacred time and i'm a solo solo guy and when i do have somebody with me i get anxiety I get anxiety over that, like, oh, this guy doesn't screw it up, or or I get pressure of I don't want to screw something up for him. Yeah. When it's me, when it's just me, if I screw it up, I screwed it up. If I made it work, I made it work. Yeah. Well. So when you're solo elk hunting, I mean, you've shot a lot of elk. Okay, just looking at all the yeah. pictures, are you doing mostly like spot and stock, sneaking in on them, or I mean, are you trying to call and then run up so you don't get windowed, or what's going on? Yeah, great question. I. To kind of answer that, I started. If you're looking forward to another fall of hunting big bucks, but you're tired of freezing your tail off or getting busted by does, head over to maverickhunting.com and check out their Maverick and Booner blinds. 
both series are incredibly easy to set up and get out in the woods. I set up two of the six panel blinds in the same week. And whether your favorite spot is on a field edge or way back in the sanctuary, you can have a hard-sided blind in your favorite spot this season. Keep the elements out and you're sent in with a Maverick hunting blind. The best part is Maverick blinds ship out of their factory in just one or two days, which means you still have plenty of time to get a comfortable blind set up before the cold weather arrives and those big bucks are cruising through your spots. Go to maverickhunting.com and use the code WESTERNROOKIE, that's one word, to save 10%. That's right, 10% on your Maverick hunting blinds. Back up a little history. I started archery elk hunting. I shot my first bull when I was 13. I shot one with a rifle before that, but with a bow, 13. And my brother-in-laws who got me into it. My family wasn't archery hunters. My dad got my brother and I bows when we were like 10 years old, like our Hoyt Ram Hunter compound bows. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my brother-in-law, they hunted elk and they were waterhole guys. They'd find waterholes, they'd set up a tree stand and they would sit water holes and ambush, right? Wait for him to come in. And so that's what he took me to go do. And I, I sat a lot of water holes, sat a few wallows that my brother and I, when I was in high school, started calling him. And we'd uh, killed multiple bulls, bugling them in, cow calling them in, et cetera. And that's the fun part everybody likes to do, right? It's fun. Yeah. It's exciting. Over the last eight to 10 years, gosh, the last like eight or nine bulls I've killed, I've never called to them. I, I'm a leave my call in my pocket or my read in my mouth to stop that bowl right, yeah. before I send one through the pump house. Um, I mostly stock them now. Like, is what changed for me is it was like I got sick of killing satellite bowls, you know, a right. two seventy six point or whatever, and I, I'm like I want to kill the herd bull, and we chased so many herd bulls right everybody's done it you're chasing them they're screaming back at you so it's exciting but they're just talking to you as they move their ladies away right and and it's so hard to hunt a herd bull and i started learning if i want to kill a herd bull there's some other techniques and methods to do it and i've 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 done a pretty good job of figuring most of those out and i feel like if i can find a good herd bull if i got enough opportunities i can kill him i can kill him it's most mostly i'm mostly stalking them so you gotta, so you gotta find them first. So it's kind of hard. You gotta hunt places where you can see them. Like you can't hunt solid black timber too. Yeah, it's tough. I I will hunt in the timber, um, but it's a lot of locating where they're at at daylight, right? Where they're feeding. Like elk in general will mm-hmm. come. I mean, depending where you're hunting, right? But in general, in the West, elk are coming down to feed at night. And they're usually moving back up into their bedding areas is pretty much mostly the standard in the West. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously it varies from place to place, but you know, you figure that out in the area you're hunting. So I know they're down. So I'll hit the lower elevations and levels. I will, I will be in there at three in the morning if I have to listen to them bugle so I can find where the herd is at three in the morning. And I will get within 600 yards of that herd and sit and listen to them and listen to them. And I'll try and get to where I'm within 200 yards by legal shooting light, play the wind because your problem, you know, getting your, your wind's coming down in the morning normally. Right. Sun's, sun's got to come up, thermal's got to shift. And if you can with the terrain, I want to play it where when the thermals shift, I'm in the perfect place to cut them off or take an angle in on them with the wind. I've killed a lot of bulls where the wind is really scary. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're about to get me. Um, so I'll, I'll do that. I, I killed a bull last year. Um, a great bull, three, a three fifty bull with my bow. I was in there at three 30 in the morning. I watched him on day one. He had 24 cows already. I couldn't get on, on him. So I let him bed. He never came out at night. So I went back to where I found him the next day at three 30 in the morning until I recognized his bugle and did exactly what I just described. And at about, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes after legal shooting line, I put an arrow through the pump station. Um, just getting in the way of that herd as they came by. You were on the mountain at three thirty, or you left like you left on to go. Mountain. Oh my on gosh, mountain. you're waking up at like midnight and going out. Yeah, like we. I don't know if you've ever done this. We used to. My brother and I. We used to go out into areas where we could take like you know ATVs, where you got roads through Forest Service, whatever. And we would go out at two thirty, three in the morning. He'd go this way. I'd go that way. I'd drive out to a point, I'd bugle, sit and listen for five minutes. And he and I would each do that for like an hour and a half to two hours, meet back at a spot and go, what do you have? I got two bulls in this, screaming down in this canyon. I got a bull in this canyon. And then we'd make a plan on whoever had the most bulls screaming and we'd take off and it's only five in the morning and we're taking off into that canyon at 5 a.m. to get on them. I use the same strategy, except for if I have a specific target bull, I'll, I'll be there at 3.34 in the morning, I don't care. So can you do that like day in and day out or do eventually you just run out of go because you're not sleep? I mean, you, you, I don't know where you hunt, but typically like we don't get to bed until 9 or 10. Very rarely are we sleeping before 10. So if you're waking up at like midnight, 1 o'clock and getting on the mountain at 3, like that's only like two hours of sleep. Yeah, a lot of times the way I'll do it, we I will all grind and grind and I, get, I go without a lot of sleep in September. <laughs> but... <laughs> On that hill, if I got a scenario like that and they get past me and they move up into that thick timber in the bedding area, don't get me wrong, once in a blue moon, I've followed them and I've killed a few bulls laying in their bed in their bedding area before. I've, I've done it a couple of times, but if I can't keep up to them, if there's too many eyes and ears and I don't want to blow it, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll go lay down under a tree and sleep for four hours until evening. You okay, know, so you're just catching uh, up on your sleep, and then when you don't have anything going on. Yeah, if I can, I'll I'll take a nap somewhere. But if I got to just do it day after day after day, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, we've we've done the early thing, and to get out there early enough to make sense. I mean, you got to get up early, early, and so then lately, like, and we don't typically have a lot of success in the mornings. Um, we're hunting general units typically. We're usually hunting new units, and so it's like we're trying to find spots and. And so typically we find most of our success like early afternoon and evening. I mean, mm-hmm. that's when we've shot, I think one person shot one bull in the morning, but all the rest of our bulls have been after lunch. Right on. So. Yeah, I've, I have a mix. I, I, I killed two bulls this year. I killed one of them in the in the evening and killed the other one in the morning. Yeah. Um, I like mornings a lot because I feel like I can kind of pattern them unless there's so much pressure, they get bumped a lot, but uh um, I like that I can find them at night because I don't seem to have any competition when I'm laying there at 3.30 or 4 in the morning listening for them. No, you definitely uh, don't. Not for me anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I like the morning scenario because I can know where they're at before it's light. Right. Um, but I'll, I'll hunt them just as much in the evening too. But but I do like mornings. Yeah. How, so are you taking like the to do two elk hunts, unless you just bam, bam, like on a weekend warrior style – 
you must be taking like a majority of the fall off to do all these hunts. It's like, are you somehow doing this for your full-time job or how does that work? Oh man, I wish. Um, <laughs> if somebody out there wants to pay me to just hunt, uh, give me a call. Uh, no, I'm a, I'm a salesman. So uh, I've worked in sales for gosh, nine years. And it used to be, I was on a nine to five job in the white collar world and I'd save all my vacation and just use it in September and October and a little bit in December to chase cats. And when I started into sales, it got to where that's when I started hunting multiple states, started apply, applying all over the place. So I learned real quick with sales. If you work the right kind of sales job, um, it's not that sour, salary paychecks the same every two weeks or the I work this many hours. It's if I want to make more money or I want to go buy a new bow or a gun, I go make a few more sales. Um, yeah. And so I've learned to work hard, really hard when I'm working um, so that it pays off when I'm, I, I mean, there's nothing like hunting and I got phone service and ding, there's a purchase order, you know, and I'm, I'm out on the mountain. It's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I've done that before. I got a, some, I have a beard, uh, beard oil company, uh, bull elk beard oil. And this year, while I was elk hunting, I was check. I turned my service on to check text messages, and bing, order came yeah, in. Bing. I was like, "Nice, got paid today." Yeah. Now, obviously, not nearly as much as I spent that day in Colorado, but sure, yeah, yeah. I I do take a lot, and September is probably the most. I gosh, our our archery hunt opened August thirtieth, and it goes to the end of September, so there's thirty two days to hunt. I killed my first bull on September first, the third day, and then I hunted for my second bull tag that I'd had, and I, I killed him on the 20th. Um, I believe out of those 22 days, gosh, I think I hunted 18 of them. That's crazy. Especially, like, when you're from ho- when you're from Idaho, though, like, you know, you can hunt yeah. and come home at night and be with the family. Whereas- yeah, if you get, get the right tag or the right unit where you don't have to travel and you can yeah. run home it makes a big difference yeah i love that about this farm that we just bought is i can like we got a room right down there with gun safe in it and all my clothes and my bow and i just get dressed and walk out the back and we yeah. got 40 acres to go tree stands and stuff and i can come back in for dinner like it you know it's not even late yeah, it's like going on that outfitted hunt right there See? that would be nice yeah <laughs> i would love so one of the things that i haven't had the opportunity to do yet is a mule deer hunt where i had the where I could pass bucks. Every mule deer hunt I've ever been on, whether between poor planning or droughts or pressure, it's you you find out real fast, like one or two days in, we're like, oh, I better shoot the first buck I see because it's going to be the only buck I see. Mm-hmm. And every mule deer hunt I've been on, I shot the biggest, the first deer I shot on the last day, and it was the first, like, decent buck I had seen. Oh, wow. And so... You know, southeast Montana and, you know, general random units in Wyoming and, you know, but I want to go on that mule deer hunt where you can look at some bucks and you can be like, "Mm," like an antelope hunt in a way and be able to look at a couple good bucks and pass. And then, you know, maybe, maybe you pass too many of them and you don't tag anything, but it'd still be just fun to look at some bucks and shoot a nice, you know, I'm not even talking 170, 180 or like that, whatever you shot, that 210 incher, um, the, just like a nice. 154 point would be great. 
Oh, you can do it. I can help you out. That's that's not too. We can find that for you. Oh, I know they're out there. That's the problem. <laughs> I know they're out there. I'm like, oh man, and, you know, we went to Southeast Montana, and I'll let I'll let this one out of the bag. Don't go to Southeast Montana. Give it some time. <laughs> so we went there, and the, you know, Southeast Montana had its glory days back in like the '90s and the early 2000s before people had the internet. <laughs> yeah, and the people were smoking giant bucks out there. And so we were, we were going to go, and it was a buddy that I brought with, and he had never hunted the West, but he's an avid deer hunter. And, you know, I told him, hey, it's going to be rough. Like, there's going to be a lot of pressure, and we're not going to see toads. Like, it's this is an opportunity hunt. We're going to look at a lot of two-year-old bucks, and then eventually we'll probably find a three-year-old and shoot them. We got out there, and we couldn't even find a mule deer to save our lives. It was 75 degrees on, on November 20th, and <laughs> there was three trucks on every corner of every public, and it was awful. And so my buddy passed a four by four on the first day, probably a two year old four by four, you know, those little two by four. Yeah. four by, he passed one of those on the first day, never saw a bigger buck. Oh geez. So he shot a three by three and then on the, and then we got that broke down. We went down to town, grab a burger, went back up into the Hills. And I'm like, we got to leave. I I had a, I had to go see my fiance for a Thanksgiving um, shindig. The next day, I had like 36 hours, and I'm in Montana, and she lives basically in Wisconsin. And so we go back out, and we find this buck, and I crawl in, and he is sleeping up on a ridge with terrible wind. There's no way to get to him, and there's such a bad drought. The grass was like a centimeter long, so I couldn't even crawl. I'm like trying to crawl behind cactuses and bushes and like, you know, hide, and eventually I got, you know, skyline. And he opened his eyes, and he's looking right at me, and I'm like, well... I guess this is why I built this rifle. I'm taking this 496-yard <laughs> shot. And um, got the bipod set up, laying prone, drilled them. And uh, so it's like, okay, this went from the world's worst mule deer hunt to we both tagged out on the last day within yeah. three hours. There you go. So packed up, headed home, drove straight through the night, and got to Thanksgiving on time. You got the experience of the grind and got the glory at the end. Oh, it was too. Yeah, it was a, I mean, and this is like the first time we've hunted the West together and, you know, we start, tensions are starting to like boil up because you're not, we're not seeing anything. Yeah. There's a million and one whitetails in private and there's yeah. even more trucks than that and no meal deer and no meal deer bucks. So I think it's just bad luck. I think I've maybe picked a couple of spots that could have been better, um, but that's the next thing on like my list, my wife's list, yeah. antelope. My list is that a good mule deer hunt because I've shot some beautiful bulls, not as many as you, of course. But um, you know, I've I've done the nice elk thing. I've got a couple ones at home, ones at the taxidermist. So I've kind of scratched that itch for now. I still go elk hunting every year, but the sure. the new itch is the the big mule deer. Big mule deer, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah they're there. They take they take some work. Big mule deer. Usually not easy to come by, that's for sure. Um, What's crazy? It's easier to shoot a big elk than a big mule deer. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I have uh, I have some buddies that are just die hard, die hard mule deer guys, and I love it. They're like mule deer rule, everything else takes you know third fiddle to it. And uh, and we, we like to harass each other and joke a lot because I'm a I'm an elk guy, like uh I've killed some big mule deer, but uh, my fun level is way up here with elk. Yeah. Um, my I love and probably appreciate a big mule deer more than I do a big elk, 
but my fun level isn't as high when I'm hunting them. Um, and so they like to give me a hard time all the time about it. But, uh, but a big mule deer, you put your hands on a big mule deer that you grinded for it. It's, it's awesome. We Very went awesome. to, uh, s- uh, Southwest Colorado shed hunting with a previous podcast guest, Steven Walker. And he finds a ton of sheds and we get to his house and he's like, Hey, look at this. And he, he walks over and he had him on a, like a, it was like a buffet table, like out next to his dining room table, but it wasn't set up to serve. It was just these two antlers and he picks them up and it was like a 208 inch match set of mule deer sheds. Uh, and the thing was they were clean four by fours, I believe. Oh yeah. So huge, huge, just huge. And yeah. And he was, and you know, we're holding them like white tails with like a 16 inch spread. And he's like, no, no, they're more like, <laughs> no, it's out here. yeah. But yeah, he said he found them both on the same day too. Found them, nice. Yeah, 80 yards apart or something like that. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine finding a 200-inch mule deer. Like I'm, like, I'm looking for a 140 or a 150. Like, I know my bar is pretty low as mule deer go. <laughs> and there he is with a set of 208-inch sheds. Yeah, yeah. Big big mule deer sheds are fun to hold. I, I've had a hard time mounting some of my big ones because i'd like to pick them up and hold them <laughs> you should just put rods in them i know i've totally thought about it i there was something in my head about not wanting to break up that skull plate um on well, the ones i've killed but unless you're going to put it in the book it doesn't matter yeah and I, i've never entered anything in the books so yeah uh yeah it's just something mental in my head it's like oh, I, I don't know if i want to my taxidermist did that on my bull elk um because he has a basement shop and so he's like uh-huh. first of all i'm not going to get it out of here once yeah. i mount it just so you know and i'm like well what do you what do we do like can you mount it in your garage or something and he's like well not really and he's like but you're also not going to get it in your house either so yeah. we got to peg it and i'm like what do you mean and so he's like well i'm going to put it i'm going to drill a hole through it and so that way I have the hole to line it up and then I cut the antler off and put a rod in and, yeah. and I'm like, I don't know. sounds like I get to pick up a 350 inch set of sheds. And he's like, yep, basically. And so I told, yeah. I told my next taxidermist cause he quit doing elk after that. He said, I, I'm my back's too bad. I can't pick them up and put them on the, you know, on his mount to do yeah. all the work. And he's like, it's hard on my back. So I'm done with elk. And I'm like, ah, shoot. So I found a new taxidermist, had him on the podcast too from North Dakota. And I'm like, Hey, you better peg these. I want to be able to pick the sheds up. And he's like, Oh dude, I love when customers let me put pegs in. Yeah. And with elk, a lot of times you have to, I have a bull being mounted right now. And yeah, it's like, I'm not getting him in a house. I I don't have a shop door into my house. So it's like, he's being pegged no matter what, or I'm not getting him in. Well, I've only shot narrow bulls, which is crazy. The 354 only has a 34 three or 34 inch inside spread uh, and it's where his whale tails actually go out his in yeah. his like true insides from like third to third is only 31 inches uh, i think it i think when those bulls hit that like 40 or 45 inches wide they look oh. so much bigger even though they're probably not as big sure yeah like maybe score wise or whatever not much bigger but when you see that just giant frame yeah it's impressive but if you do like a half well let me think no, it probably doesn't even matter. If you did a straight up, you, you're not getting it in because, the you know, you're 45 inches wide and a normal door is like 31 inches. And oh, even yeah. if you turn it sideways, then you got to get that shoulder and that shoulder. Like, you're just not getting the thing in your house. Yeah, it's like which way are you trying to mount that head to get it in? Yeah, the, te- the taxidermist mountain mine right now, it's rare he mounts a bull that is not pegged. 
Um, it's got to be somebody that like that's a question. Are you going to get this in your house? And most of the time, it's no. Yeah, it's got to be like uh, a shop. Like, yeah, yep. I'm putting it in my shop. <laughs> Put in the shop or the garage or something. Then he can leave it the way it is. But yeah, there's something about holding them. Are you a big taxidermy guy? Are you doing like shoulder mounts on all your bulls? Because you shot a lot of nice bulls. No, you know, uh, the bull that I have being mounted right now is the first elk I've ever mounted. I do a ton of euros. Okay. Um, I can be wrong. There's plenty of heads in the house. Like I got a, a moose head in my living room, a caribou head, a couple of white tails, a couple of muleys, uh, an axis deer all in my living room. And then I got a bunch, you know, I got a sick of black tail mount downstairs, some wolf rugs, a full mount wolf, a few things like that. But I hunt enough. I, I don't, I don't have space for the ones I do mount, <laughs> yeah. let, alone, let alone the others. And elk take up so much space. I, oh, my God. Well, talk about the space that moose you got probably takes up the most. Yeah, he was a, a Shiras. Uh, I get hate for that. But when I was 12 years old in Idaho, I drew my once-in-a-lifetime moose tag the first time I ever put in in Idaho. Hey, we can be part of the club. I drew my once-in-a-lifetime North Dakota <clears throat> the first year I put in for it. That's where I shot the 354. Yeah, the club. The club's good. One percenter club. I don't know what 100%. the odds were for the Idaho one, but the the elk tag I drew in North Dakota was like 0.75% chance. Yeah, not good. I, I couldn't tell you what my odds were. I was 12 years old and didn't have the internet. And you didn't even apply. Your dad did for you. <laughs> yeah, my, exactly. My dad applied for me. There were three tags given is all I know, but I don't know how many people applied but I got one of those three tags at 12 years old. And that's the last time I ever drew a tag in Idaho. I've never drawn an elk tag. I've never drawn a deer tag. And I've never drawn an antelope tag in Idaho. All I've drawn is that moose when I'm 12. Would you take it back then? Like if that's, if like if someone at the game and fish told you like, yeah, we keep throwing your name out because you drew that moose. Would you be like, <laughs> well, uh, now I wish I would have never drawn the moose. No, it was, it was awesome. And, you know, a lot of people are like, ah, you were so young. Wouldn't you like to do it later? It was awesome. I got to hunt that with my dad and my grandpa. And the, the year after that hunt um, with my grandpa, my grandpa passed away from cancer. Um, and so I got, my dad had a mountain goat tag that same year. So we hunted my moose, me and grandpa and dad. And then we went and hunted dad's mountain goat, me and grandpa and dad. And those were the last hunts I ever got to do with him. It was a handful of months later he got diagnosed, you know, and then made it a while longer. So I, the, the memories and the experience I had with him would make it so I would never, ever take that back. I'd happily give up uh, drawn deer and elk tags in exchange for what that moose experience was. And to be honest, most of the time I'm doing fine on my general tags. So yeah, no, okay. you're you're doing plenty fine on your general tags. I'm looking at the picture right here from the Wasatch Front. <laughs> it's <that's laughs> So, story behind that, a majority of my posts will say something about the Wasatch Front. None of those animals are killed on the Wasatch Front. Oh, uh, well, you know what yeah. elk I'm talking about is a stud elk. <laughs> yeah. Was that just the recent one, six by seven? Yeah, well, let's see here. One, two, three, four. Yeah, that's, that's six by seven. Okay. Yep, that was the last one I shot this year then. Yeah, I have a buddy that does that on Instagram too, but he'll do like, sometimes he makes it tricky. Like you think he could actually be, like he'll shoot a monster whitetail and be like, God, I love Kansas. And I, yeah, I work with him, so I knew he was in like South Dakota. 
Sure, yeah. You know, or he'll do stuff like, you know, your mom's 40, you know, back 40 or yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. I do a lot of your mom's house or most of my Wasatch friends are like Wasatch from CrossFit or Wasatch from Kia or, or yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah, that's what this one was, this Wasatch okay. from Kia. But, yeah, that's a uh, – do you ever uh, age your bulls? Do you ever pull out a tooth and age them? You know, I, I haven't on elk. I've, I've really enjoyed doing that on deer the last, gosh, three to four years. I started doing it on a lot of deer. Like whitetails or mule deer? Um, Mule deer. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've I've done it on a couple of white tails, but mule deer is where I got the first itch to do it. Um, I had uh, a friend. Um, some people might know who he is. Travis Hobbs, just a mule deer uh, killing machine. He killed a buck. He's he's the reason I aged him. He killed a buck in velvet that was over two hundred inches and set the tooth in, and it came back at three and a half years old. Oh my. God, um, you know, Another wicked, world wicked genetics, yeah, wicked genetics, young deer. And it got me going, man, I've always thought I kind of could age these deer, you know, swayed backs, Roman noses, looking at their teeth. And it made me start to send some in and go, how bad am I really at, at guessing the age on some of these? And, and it's impressed me. I, I killed a mule deer in 2020 that when I shot him, if you just said, Rusty, how old do you think he is? I'm like, dude, this deer's seven years old, swayed back, big old Roman nose, curled hooves. And then I cape him out and I'm looking at his teeth going, his teeth don't look seven years old. And uh, I send him in um, four and a half years old, 214 and change inch buck at four and a half. That was your, that's the five by four? No, no, this is a different buck. He's got a drop tine hanging off of him. Oh, okay. Um, got some inline, some non-typical stuff. It was back in 2020, and that blew my mind, too, because then I'm going, man, what could he have been at five and a half, six and a half? Right. Um, but if you'd, if you'd asked me, even looking at him on the hoof all day long, I'd have told you he was six to seven years old um, until I looked at those teeth. So it's fun. Yeah. I've, I've enjoyed sending them in and seeing what they come back as. Yeah, I, I like to do it on all the whitetails we shoot. Um, we shot a buck at the family farm, kind of spot and stock. It's last day of gun season, and this buck's chasing and out in the middle of a plowed field on our farm. And so we went and tried to sneak up on him. He, you know, back and forth, ping pong, never get a shot. He beds down in the middle of a CRP field, like CRP grass, like, you know, just prairie grass. Yeah. You know, four feet tall. And so me and my brother just sneak up. He moves up five yards, and I cover, and then I move up, and we're doing this, like, we're doing the pinch kind of, like, at from a V. Yeah. And eventually we both see his antler in the, in the grass. And so he, I'm like, hey, you know, yeah, is he a shooter? And I said, yeah, he's a shooter. Well, he shoots. He, like, tracked the antler down. He's trying to shoot him in the head at 35 yards, but he, like, picked the wrong ear. Like, he thought he was shooting on the left side of the ear, and it turns out he should have shot on the right side of the ear, so he just sure. probably gave him a headache. So he, and then his gun jams. So I hit the deck because the deer jumps up and he's shooting. Or I thought he was going to shoot. He never shoots. So I stand up. Deer runs right by me. I shoot at it. I put a lethal shot in it. Turns out this buck, 157 and a half inch whitetail, three and a half years old. Uh, and the same thing. It's like, man, what would he have been at five? You yeah. know, we would have looked at that deer all day long. He had junk. He was a 13. He had split brows and kickers everywhere. We would have thought for sure he's like four, five, six years old, maybe even like, you know, older. He's getting all that gnarly junk on him. And yeah. no, three and a half years old, just just entering his prime. 
I've, I've determined the bucks that have the legitimate genetics, they got them and they get big real quick. And then you got those other deer that, uh, you know, maybe in a whitetail world, they're, you got some of those that are never even going to go over 150 their whole life. Mule deer, I see that all the time. You have a buck that is never going to get out of the 170s ever. It doesn't matter how long he lives. Yeah. He just doesn't, have, just doesn't have the genetics for it. You can't see it. It's on the side of my uh, screen, but one of those sheds on the top row. The top row sheds are all special sheds. There's 10 of them. Uh, they have to have size and a story to get on the top row. Uh, but the first shed I ever found was a shed off our own farm, and it was a big, heavy deer with a kicker, and I chased them all fall, didn't get them, found the shed the next year. Then my dad shot that buck the following fall. <laughs> Six years old, 115 inches. Uh, yeah. It's crazy. Just didn't have it. Just didn't have it. Yeah, he was a little bit bigger as a five-year-old, but even then, like, only 130 maybe. You know, he just, like you said, didn't have it. Like, it's just some. It's crazy because I feel like there's just so many people out there that will tell you, like, oh, six and a half, they're a giant or this or that. I'm like, ah, it seems like they're just random, just like people. Some people yeah. are Michael Jordans and some people are Brian Krebses and can't dunk to save their yep. life. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's true. It's my, my buddy up in Canada, he's got a buck he's watching now that um, they're pretty positive. He's three and a half. Um, and you can tell he's small framed white tail, but he's got like eight points on one side, nine on the other three drop times. And we're just going, man, if he can make it to like five, six oh my gosh he, yeah he's one of those ridiculous potential bucks but you look at other bucks that are the same age as him and you know they're they're a, a three by three a six point white tail yeah and the frame's the same size but he's got a whole lot more going on that's crazy does your friend find a lot of sheds up there then if he's got a lot of bucks yeah he's he's got a shed pile in his lodge that i stand at that pile for hours and pick up and and just touch his antlers. And, <laughs> fondle. <laughs> yep, I fondle him. Monster. Because where I didn't grow up with whitetails, you know, I grew up picking up mule deer sheds, elk sheds and stuff, and I pick up these whitetail, and it's it's kind of ruining me to want to hunt whitetails in some other places because they're, they're massive. The mass they get up there is unreal, and I will just – I will just. he's got multiple sheds off like 200-inch, 190-inch whitetails just laying in a pile on his floor. They're unreal. I've seen, I've held a couple. I held one shed that scored 108. Just the side, just the one side scored 100. Whitetail? Yeah, whitetail shed scored 108 yeah. inches. And the thing was, its base was small. Oh, really? Very small. Yeah, my buddy uh, has the dead head and like a lot of the sheds is chasing him on his farm. It died on the neighbor's property. He bought the dead head for 500 bucks and it was like a two oh. something. Jeez. Yeah, he's like, got the deal of a lifetime. But I have a shed on that wall. It's an eight point. And the base on that whitetail shed, I can't even wrap my fingers around it. And okay. I've found elk sheds, you know, that have like <laughs> like five and six point bulls. And it's the same base as like a six point, <laughs> like a small six point bull. It's crazy how much mass that one antler has. I love those. That's part of what I love about those deer in Canada is there is a mass genetic up there. Mass droppers and flyers is a genetic that exists up in there. And I'm, I'm a mass guy all day. Like I'll, I'll shoot a buck that'll score less. If he's just got wicked chunky mass all over him, I don't care about the score. Like that mass, I want to fondle it. Right. It's awesome. 
Yeah, I've yeah, I've been hearing that it's a popular thing with sheep hunters to euro their real skull and re- get a replica for their yeah. shoulder mount or their full body mount because they want to be able to pick up that skull because it weighs so yeah. much. I've never picked one up. I have a buddy yeah. I could probably ask. He shot all four of them. Oh yeah, but yeah, he's, he's got a way around that. Yeah, but yeah, I've heard that it's like it's so impressively heavy that you like when people, and they just want to put it on their desk and be like, pick that up. Yeah, you know, just when the people come into their office, they're like, pick that up, and you know, holy crap, this thing's heavy, like heavy, heavy, not just like yeah. a you know an eleven pound shed, like the thing weighs like forty pounds. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, totally heavy. I I've been impressed with. Uh, like muskox heads for the oh, same reason. Oh, yeah, that would be a great one. Just super dense and crazy heavy. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's a skull the size of a cow skull, whatever. And you pick it up, and it's just beefy, kind of like a bighorn sheep. And, uh, yeah, if I ever shoot one of those, I'm I'm leaving it as a skull that I can manhandle. Yeah, and there's a lot cool, like, retrofit and proto, like, not, what's the right word for this? Like, th- you can replicate them a lot easier than you used to be able to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, way easier. My... I got a good buddy right now. He's got a little business going. He's 3D scans the animals, you know, and we'll make like, you know, the mini versions. Oh, mini muleys like Cameron? Like, yeah, it's like like the mini muleys. Instead of using pictures and running through a software that we can scan the actual oh. deer. So, so like that big, like 215 buck on the front of my page, we scanned it the other day. Um, and we, you know, make a mini replica of the entire head and we can put it on a Euro. But at the same time, you now have a file he scanned. Yeah. Heaven forbid your house burns down or whatever it is, your trophy gets ruined or damaged. You could replicate it right off of that scanned file now. Well, oh, who's that? Uh, his name is Johnny Dietrich. He's a local guy here getting started, but it's uh, it's pretty impressive. Yes. Yeah. The way scanners and printers, 3D printers and stuff are going now, they're just getting better and better and better. So if you have a scan of your trophy and yeah, falls off the wall and breaks into pieces, you can't glue it together. The fire takes it, whatever you have that file, you can 3d print your trophy back out. Yeah. We had, um, I've had, so I have another podcast for like outdoor entrepreneurship, people that start up outdoor businesses and brands and love hearing the story. And we had, I've had both like Cameron from mini muleys on and I've had, uh, Phil Tuttle and, um, is it Adam Burke from Antler Tech? Yeah. And they can, it's like if you find a big shed and send it to them, they'll scan it and they'll print yeah. the opposite side if you yep. can't find the opposite. And they had a set of mule deer sheds that was probably 200 inches. And I'm just like, oh, my God. But, like, what's the weight? You know? Like like you said, like, if yeah. the weight's off, it, I'm going to know the difference. And he said, yeah. we weighed this one and that one, and there's a two-ounce difference between the two. Yeah, that crazy? Yeah. To, so, like, you can't tell. Like, he's a lot of people, they pick them up at shows, and they can't. He's like, guess which one's real and which one's fake, and they can't they can't figure yeah. it out. They'll guess wrong all the time. You, you know what I would love to see with that technology, but you'd somehow have to get it popular enough. Like, I'm not a big fan of, like, the Boone Crockett scoring system. Oh. There's, like, so many flaws, right? To- like, totally, yeah. But you'd have to rewrite the record books. But where you can scan these now, you can literally measure the exact volume of bone on top of a deer's head. So it's, right. it's similar to, like, water displacement, right? Yeah. Um, and I would love – I mean, you'd have to rewrite the record books. But with my buddy Johnny, we're doing a little experiment. We got – I got a couple bucks in my house here in that 214 to 215 range. My dad's got a 215 in his house. We're scanning all three of them. I'm going to measure the volume of bone on top of each of their head, 
So even though they score within one to two inches of each other, Boone and Crockett, it's going to be interesting to see which one's really the biggest as far as how much bone is up there. Whichever one's got the most mass. Yeah, it's going to be my dad's. And uh, in my mind, that's that's awesome. I think it's super cool. You, you might have it should, be, it should always friends. be the amount of bone. The only thing yeah. somebody could ever say, like, um, well, then you don't get the width. Like, the width could be – but that's still, like, to me, if you had um, – in order to get wide, you need more antler to go sure. out. And if he doesn't have the width, like, he isn't as big. You know, right. he could have put that antler, that bone somewhere else. But if you, like, and I, you know what is actually sad, it's very sad that this is the case. But the case that proves it is, like, look at the captive deer industry. Oh, yeah. Like, those bucks grow more antler. They're super ugly. I don't agree with it at all. I think it's really harmful to CWD and all these things. But that's the testament to like when they're truly healthy and the genetics are perfect, it's just about how many, how much mass, how many like yeah. grams of bone do they grow. And, um, and that would be a great way. I would love to do it that way. Like, and then you just cut them off. You could just yeah. cut off the sheds right at the pedicle and, you know, weigh them. Yep, doesn't matter. Yep, doesn't matter. Or yeah, just I, do the whole skull, the euro. Like, why does it, why do, why can't a skull count for how big he is? Like, if he's got a thick head, like a bigger nose, like it should count. I don't know. Yeah. Like we're splitting hairs here. I love the idea of just how much bone you would. You have the record books would be rewritten, but we're 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 gonna play around with it with him for fun. Um, you know what? There's gonna... so many people though. Like the silent majority definitely does not like Boone and Crockett's yeah. system. I've talked to, I've heard, like, I haven't talked to them. I've heard people describe why Boone and Crockett started. And I really okay, do, Boone, I, I really do like what they stand for. Like, if he goes back to their true mission. He says, well, Boone and Crockett started because we had market hunting and we had, like, it's brown, it's down hunting and all that stuff. And we needed to come out with a way that would incentivize people to take the healthiest animal for the health of the herd, which is a mature buck. Because sure. he's done his job. You can't take young bucks. You can't take does. Like, if you want the health of the herd, the healthiest animal to take is the mature buck. But how do we incentivize yeah. that action? And, and and then also, how do we measure, like, the health of the herd? And so, like, you know, that was the way they could do it back then. Because they didn't have the technology we have today. And I get sure. that. I think it's a great system. Like, they found a way to incentivize quality deer management. Like, health. Right? They gamified the system. Right, you throw Absolutely. a number on it. Now everyone wants a bigger number, yep. and you, yeah, sure you can argue some places they took that in a different direction, and now it's you know trophy hunting and maybe not the best best you know intentions, but it still is a great system. But there are so many people that like are with you and I. Like, let's do volumetric, let's do mass, let's do weight. I bet if you just got a couple of people with a strong enough voice, yes. To, like, start selling shirts with the new name. Like, come up with a really creative new name, like Boone and Crockett, Pope and Young. They're great, catchy names. You got to come up with a good one, you know, something different. You make shirts about it. You just do stuff. You have, like, fun with it. You almost take on, like, cryptocurrency level, like, culture and, like, you know, jokes and stuff like that. I I bet you'd get so many people on board with this. And you just, you do it in a way where it's, like, it doesn't have to make or break. Like, we did it so, like... Um, yeah. we don't have to pay money. It's not costing us anything. We're not going to like go belly up if it doesn't work in three years. Like sure. we're just going to do this until it catches on and eventually it's going to catch on. That's what we'd like to do. In fact, when, when we get this done, I'll, I'll tag you in it or send it to you. Or we're going to, 
we want to do those three bucks, measure them out. Here's where their B, B and C scores are, but here's how much kind of volume and just kind of make it fun, right? Like, hey, pick which one you think's the biggest, you know, based off of just right. looking at them. And then let's show you what it really is. Have it be fun, but um, because I'm in, I'm interested in doing it. Yeah, we you got to we got to come up with a good name though, like Booner. Just Bo- I don't yeah. know. Maybe they don't even trademark Booner. Maybe we could still call them Booners. They may. My brother's name is Boone, so yeah, you know it's always a little weird to me. But the like Pope and Young, like no one yeah. calls him Popers. Like <laughs> even archery hunters still they go, don't. he's he's gross Boone. Yeah. So we got to yeah. come up with a good, like a good old boy that was like a phenomenal hunter. Like I always think about like Teddy Roosevelt. Sure. Yeah. Like something like that. Like, like the I don't know. Yeah, the the, the Jack O'Connor or something. Or like Lewis and Clark or something like that. Yeah, something. Yeah. But it's got to be a catchy name for someone to describe. Like, oh, I shot a Booner. Like, oh, like you can't say like, oh, I shot a Roosevelt. I don't sure. know. Like it doesn't work. <laughs> we'll have to ponder on that one. We'll have to ponder on it. Lots that. of beer, lots of pizza, lots of campfires, <laughs> but we'll get it. <laughs> Figure it out. Figure it out. There you go. Awesome. Well, it's been just over an hour, Rusty. I've really appreciated talking to you, hearing some of the stories, man. It's crazy. Um, Canadian whitetails and shooting big elk and all that stuff. I could go on forever, but I got a little bit of work to wrap up tonight. Understand. Understand. So. Well, thank you for being here. Give folks a chance to uh, follow along with you where they can check out all these crazy animals that we've been talking about and all these experiences that you've gone on. Where can they tag along and see the adventures? Yeah, most most of what I put out there is on Instagram. Uh, my handle on Instagram is a little weird. It's RTS underscore Proverbs 21B19. And so there, you understand behind that, it's a kind of a joke with my wife and I, Proverbs twenty one nineteen in the Bible says it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. And oh, so really? Every, every fall I can joke around and be like, man, honey, you're, you're a little honoring. I guess I'm going to go hunting. Um, and it's kind of been a joke with us, our whole marriage. And uh, so that's what that stands for. But yeah, RTS underscore Proverbs 21B19 on Instagram. Is, is where I put up all. I had no. I've never read that passage, so I didn't know that that was advice in the Bible. Oh yeah, great, great advice from Proverbs. I was told by a pastor that it's better to be in the woods thinking about God than be in church thinking about the woods. <laughs> so that's why I took it to heart. But I did. I guess I got another backup option too, depending on what the situation yeah. is. Yeah. I have several arrows in that quiver. There you go. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here, Rusty, and thank you for listening, folks.